Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Live Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we continue our reflections into uh, the richness of the gospel text, the gospel that we will hear this Sunday. As we do this, we return to ordinary time to find ourselves in the gospel of John. And today's reading, one of my favorite episodes in all of sacred scripture, and certainly one of the richest episodes in all of sacred scripture, the wedding feast at Cana. You know, I say it is one of my favorite because there are so many layers to it. There's so many um, points to be had. And quite honestly, we only have 26 to 28 minutes here on Seeds of Truth to engage um, the gospel text. So what I do from one week to the next um, is pray over what I should talk about. And so hopefully this evening's program uh, you will find beneficial. And if you have any questions thoughts, comments, observations about what I'm talking about here this evening, or anything I talk about at any time about the Christian and Catholic faith, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can go to joholcraft.org. Um, oh, by the way, someone asked me the day, how do you spell your last name? That's H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T, so joholcraft.org, J-O-E-H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T.org. You can hit the contact link button there and send your email on its way. Okay, with that, if you have your Bibles out there, if you want to turn to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, the marriage at Cana. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Mm. Rich, rich, rich. Now, before we get into the lessons to be learned and insights to be gained from the passage itself, let's read this passage as they would have read it 2,000 years ago without verses. We must remember that the original text was written without chapters and verses. Why is this important? Well, we started with 
John chapter 2, verse 1. And yes, it's convenient for me to say John chapter 2, verse 1, verses uh, go to word number 893 of the Gospel of John, right? So uh, the monks in the Middle Ages provided for us chapters and verses, fair enough. But we have to be mindful that if we read them exclusively within the context of chapters and verses, we can lose the context because we would never start a book per se in chapter 21 or chapter 36. No, to better understand chapter 21 and 36, you start with chapter one because without the first 20 chapters or 35 chapters, what do you have? But a narrative, a story that doesn't make any sense, huh? So we must be mindful of the whole, especially, my dear friends, with John the Evangelist. John is a theologian. He has always been tied to the symbol of the eagle because he soars with great care. And under the influence of the Holy Spirit, of course, he pens a masterpiece where layer upon layer, he discloses the many wonderful ways that Christ not only fulfills the Old Testament, but at once transforms it in the blood of the Eucharist. We could properly say that John uses things that are familiar to explain things that are unfamiliar. Consider, if you will, the opening verse to the Gospel of John, in the beginning. The Greek there, iniarche, translates the Hebrew bereshif that we read in where? But Genesis 1.1. So from the outset, John wants us thinking about the story of creation. In John 1.3, what do we read? All things were made through him. Of course, in Genesis chapter 1 and in the beginning of chapter 2, we have the two creation accounts. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness. Genesis 1.3 and Genesis 1.14, we have darkness and light being used. How about the wedding feast at Cain itself? We have a marriage account on the seventh day. Genesis 2 verses 23 to 24, of course, a marriage account on the seventh day. How about John 2 verse 4 in the narrative we just read? The first expression of man, the first expression of Jesus here is woman. How about Genesis 2.24, where the first expression of man is woman. So in the opening chapters of the Gospel of John, like that of Genesis, you have the themes of days, life, flesh, light, darkness, and creation itself. But why? Well, John wants us to see that Christ came not only to restore order, but to draw us into his grace, becoming a new creation in him. I was recently asked, Joe, what is the greatest theme to all of Paul's epistles? Well, that we are a new creation in Christ, that we are called to put on the cloth of Christ as a new creation. Huh? Now, I just spoke of a marriage account on the seventh day, and, and maybe some of you are asking why, given that John chapter 2, verse 1, speaks of the third day and not the seventh day. Well, recall what we just talked about as it relates to chapters and verses. John 2 would not have been seen removed from the rest of the chapter. First, we should say that chronologically, this refers to the third day, since our Lord's encounter with Nathanael, huh, in verse 43. Theologically, 
it has two levels of significance. Because the third day is actually the seventh day of our Lord's opening week of ministry, huh? The evangelist hints at this when he delineates the successive days in verse 29, where we read the next day. Verse 35, where we read the next day. And verse 43, where we read the next day, which has us on what day? But the fourth day. Consequently, in chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, on the third day, it is the third day from the fourth day, (laughs) implying that creation itself that was fashioned in seven days is being transformed and renewed through Jesus. Okay, that's one level. I know for some of you out there, you're probably thinking, goodness gracious, (laughs) was John the evangelist a statistician? Well, (laughs) not necessarily, but he is a theologian. And he understands the importance of revelation as it relates to days, most especially the seventh day, the day that God hallowed. Okay, there's a second meaning here. Because Jesus manifests his glory on the third day at Cana, just as he reveals his glory by rising on the third day after his death. Huh? So we ought to appreciate here what is going on, that there is something special happening on the seventh day and how that seventh day ought to be seen in light of the third day, the day of resurrection. Okay, what about this verse 4 and the wedding feast at Cana? A bit confusing verse for some. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Well, let us first say the title woman, although it might offend the standards of modern etiquette, if you will, this was actually, in antiquity, a title of respect and endearment. There is certainly some Old Testament illusions to draw out here as well, because in Genesis 3, we can say we have the reverse image of the Cana episode. Just as Eve prompted Adam to defy the Lord and drag the human family into sin, so we can rightfully say Mary prompts Jesus, the new Adam, to initiate his mission of salvation. The description of Mary and the title woman also alludes to Genesis 3.15, where Yahweh speaks of a woman whose son will trample the devil underfoot. Again, John wants us to read his gospel in light of the book of Genesis. This is clear. Huh? This is clear. What about the question, what have you to do with me? Or, maybe better rendered, what is that to you or to me? A Hebrew idiom rendered in the Greek. Its meaning here is flexible and needs to be determined by context. Generally speaking, it can express either disagreement between parties with divergent perspectives, and this is what we see uh, looking at some footnotes here in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 18, 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 13, and 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 21, okay? Disagreement between parties with divergent perspectives, or, or the free consent of one party to the expressed will of another with or without a sense of reluctance. We can see this in Mark 1, 24, Mark 5, 7, and Luke 8, 28. The second connotation fits this context since Jesus, what? promptly complies with Mary's request, huh? Mary never wavers in her confidence 
that Jesus will respond favorably to her petition. Do whatever he tells you. She is mediating. And on the heels of that mediation, what do we find? But Jesus performing the supernatural. The last words, recorded words we have of Mary in sacred scripture are those words. Do whatever he tells you. That's the message from Mary to all of us. Do whatever he tells you. Huh? Do whatever he tells you. Okay, some rich biblical theology and apologetics here. How can we apply this narrative to our everyday life? Huh? We have to understand that Christ has entered human history and his new intervention brings about not only a great sign as we read, but the miracle of new wine, a new joy, mindful that wine is uh, symbolic of the joys of marital love as we read in the Song of Songs. We could say at Cana, symbol and reality meet. Uh, Symbol and reality meet. How? Well, because in Christ, what is sacramental is the new reality. Amen to that. God's first public miracle at a wedding feast is widely important, and this is where we can just go one of a number of ways. But I want to focus in on one aspect for now. Hmm. That is why God's first public miracle at a wedding feast is so important. We are made to see that God desires to intervene in all of the concreteness and particularity of our everyday life within our marriages. And I'm convinced, my friends, we find Jesus performing his first miracle at a marriage feast because marriages need miracles. That he is attentive to the small detail alongside Mary, of course, at a marriage feast because Jesus understands that in a manner of speaking, we are called to sweat the small stuff, huh? If Satan lives in the details, then we need to pay close attention to the details. Moreover, if Christ wants to transform those small details, we need to be attentive to those details. So often in our everyday married life, we simply plod along from day to day. For some of us, maybe living with a sense of hopelessness or, or monotony or heaviness. We are locked into the minutia of what is in our circle of life. And we cannot see how God wishes to break through the ordinary moments of life and transform our existence and our history into something extraordinary. The Lord invites us to allow him to fill the structures and jars, so to speak, right, of our existence with the new wine of his presence. When we listen to the Lord and do whatever he tells us, the ordinariness of our lives becomes extraordinary. The empty jars of water become filled with new wine, and we literally become the feast for one another. And again, this always ought to be seen in light of the spiritual fruit of joy. Joy. What is the Greek word for grace, charis? Huh? Is that not the same root we have for joy? Grace and joy belong together. 
Because in so many ways, joy is that first fruit of grace, that which has this kind of power to evangelize, this great spiritual fruit of joy. I always find myself going to uh, the event of the adoration of the Magi when talking about joy. Why? Because we have that great verse that tells us they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That is the English rendering of a Greek word that has up to 12 syllables. Now, for those of you out there who might know your Greek, and maybe there's a handful of you, you know that Greek typically is very economical. One, two, maybe three syllables. So a Greek word or a stock phrase that has so many syllables suggests something. And more than just suggests something, it speaks to something directly that whatever it is it's describing, this 12, 13-syllable word, it is active. It is uh, explosive. The joy of the Magi, when they found what they were looking for in the, the infant king, was explosive. It was active. Why do I talk about this? Well, because joy is not passive. We talk about joy, and far too often in the context of evangelization, that is, we render it as passive. What well, doesn't do a whole lot? Well, in reality, no. It is that which opens the door for so many people to begin to ask about the faith because they see something they want. That is the joy of our Lord. Okay, that being said, what's interesting is that the Cana episode points out to the couple a way not to fall into this situation of boredom or get out of it if they are already in it. And how is that? Well, invite Jesus to your wedding, huh? Invite Jesus to your wedding. What happens in all marriages happens in the wedding feast at Cana. It begins with this enthusiasm and joy. The initial enthusiasm, like the wine at Cana, comes to wane with the passage of time. Then things are done no longer for love and with joy, but out of habit and routine, you see. It kind of descends upon the marriage and family. And if we are not careful, like a cloud of sadness and boredom of such couples, it must sadly be said, they have no more wine. And so we turn to Our Lady <laughs> and she says, do whatever he tells you. And we, and we return to the gospel. Today's story is ultimately about the disclosure of how God wants to reveal his greatness in the anonymity of silence. John invites us to consider seriously whether we think that the master of the feast who gives the command, fill the jars with water, can actually make all things new in our own lives. You know, we were just talking about creation and the seven days. I want to pause and reflect upon something here one of my favorite subjects, and that's time. The Hebrew word for day is yom, which is often seen in sacred scripture as something non-quantitative. As St. Augustine would remind us, clocks don't measure time, but ultimately purpose measures time. And this makes sense in light of how we are to understand man's time in light of God's time. Man's time defined in the Greek as chronos, and God's time defined in, in the Greek kairos. As I often like to point out, 
Chronos is the time we put into our iPads, the time we put into our iPhones, regulated by the 24-hour day, seven-day week, and 365-day year. Kairos, on the other hand, is the appointed time and the purpose of God. Go to Mark 1.15. Ultimately, in our faith journey of prayer, Kronos, man's time, can only be understood in the light of Kairos. God's time, as our timelines, can only be understood in the light of what makes BCE, before common era, and CE, common era, possible. That is Christ. Isn't it interesting what we've attempted to do in our secular culture? It's most fascinating to me. I remember when I was uh, going to our local state university, our Western Civ professor walked into the classroom and he said he, he had an announcement to make. And his announcement was how the timelines were moving from B.C. and A.D. before Christ and Anno Domini, year of our Lord, to B.C.E. and C.E., before common era and common era. That's all fine and well, but you still have a problem. Because B.C.E. and C.E. is still intersected by God who entered into human history. It is still defined by Christ. You see, my friends, as much as we try to remove Christ from our consciousness, it has a way of always coming back. Isn't that fascinating? So it is prayer that opens us up to Kairos, God's time, and begins to form and inform Kronos, man's time, ordering it to its proper dimension, we can say, not as an end in of itself, but a means to an end. Kairos, not Kronos, is to order our day. We have the tendency to be preoccupied with things outside of our control and its consequences if we get bogged down by Kronos. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount what? Not to worry. Don't get anxious about what tomorrow brings, but let the day's worries be sufficient for the day. We are a culture that is constantly looking into the future, asking the question, what are you going to do next in life? It is never about what the right thing is a year from now, but about the next right thing. And only when we grasp the primacy of the next right thing will we discover what the right thing is a year from now. God wishes to grace Kronos with Kairos. And so we need to start asking the question, what are we going to do today to take us out of these situations of boredom, hopelessness, and sometimes heaviness? We are made to consider how God wishes to grace the ordinary with the extraordinary, the natural with the supernatural, the physical with the metaphysical. And when we sink into this grace that he gives us in the sacrament of marriage especially, we are then in turn strengthened to love as we ought. And this takes effort on our part to will the good of the other. But in God's grace, we know that we are not doing it alone, but with God and in God. Remember, there is a reason why he arrived onto the scene at a wedding feast. And at that scene and at that feast, there is a reason why he performed the supernatural. Because marriages need the supernatural. Marriages need God. 
you know, the sacrament of marriage is suffering today because of the culture of death, which before we talk about it in the context of abortion and, and euthanasia, must first be talked about in the context of the absence of love. The more we will the good of the other, the more we love, the more our culture will begin to reflect Christ. Incidentally, my friends, remember what the word culture means. The word culture comes from the Latin cultus, which means to worship. Huh? The more we worship Christ, the one true God, the more when we are in the world, we are going to reflect Christ. Well, the more we worship pagan idols, when we go into the world, we are going to reflect those pagan idols. This is the great juxtaposition that is before us, the challenge that is before us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, inviting Jesus to your wedding, inviting Jesus into your marriages, inviting Jesus into your families means honoring the gospel in your house, praying together, receiving the sacraments, and taking part in the life of the church. This will enable us to be the best husband and father we are called to be, the best wife and mother we are called to be, the best son or daughter we are called to be, because only in light of God can we even begin to grasp this most daunting task that is before us, huh? to love with heroic love. It's exciting, daunting, but exciting. You've heard me say it before, and I'll close with this point. You know, the Christian Catholic faith is a great adventure, huh? Who doesn't enjoy a good adventure? Who wants to be thrilled out there, huh? <laughs> well, love, do God's will, and let God surprise you. All of us love good surprises. Do the will of God and let God surprise you. And when he surprises you, your life will be transformed into a great adventure. Mean all sorts of new people. Find yourself in all sorts of new conversations, emboldened with a new sense of purpose. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.